My name's Tony. I'm an alcoholic. This reminds me of the first time I, I got up at a meeting to, to, to tell my story. Um, one of the traditions in Pensacola is on your birthday, you share your, you know, your story. The first time I did that, I remember uh, looking out over a room that wasn't nearly this big and thinking, having listened to a lot of other folks, like I have this week, that once I get done with this, they're going to say, this guy hasn't done anything. He's not really an alcoholic. He doesn't belong here. And then when I got done, I, I was thinking, God, what did I say? These guys are going to think, this guy's so bad. He doesn't belong here. Get this guy out of here. So the reality was it came somewhere in between. And I, I think I belong here. <clears throat> in, in that moment of silence before the serenity prayer, I was told very early on to uh, meditate on my bottom. So I, I do that, and I did that. 5,230 days ago, I hit my bottom, and that was not that bottom. <clears throat> I hit my bottom, which was, uh, I, I call myself a low-bottom drunk because I hit my bottom in the, the uh, downtown tunnel under the Elizabeth River in Norfolk, Virginia. So I wrecked my car there, and that was, uh, that was the day I had my last drink, so April 13, 1990. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about the 10th and 11th steps and uh, how those have have uh, been important to me in my recovery. And, and I thought it would probably be a good idea to start off by telling you that the first thing I did today, which is the first thing that I do pretty much every day, was to take the 11th step. And I'm going to read this part out of the big book. It's on page 86. And this is what I did this morning. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. <clears throat> our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. That's what I did the first thing this morning, and the rest of the day has been involved in struggling against all those wrong motives, which was, I hope they really like what I had to say. I hope I don't say anything really stupid. How am I going to get up there and, and say anything that people need to hear or haven't heard before? So um, it reminds me of a friend of mine I had years ago who talked about after 41 years of sobriety, the two things that he still struggled with the most were, number one, he didn't handle rejection very well, and number two, he fought with his ego on a daily basis. So I can tell you that that's definitely something that goes on for me. Let me qualify a little bit. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. Um, what I used to be like. Um, I grew up in a little town in Ohio, and there, there was no alcoholism that I knew about at the time in my immediate family, although I have th heard things over the years from my mom that make me think maybe my dad had a kind of disease like this, although it, it never to the point where it was an obvious thing to us. But I do know that on my dad's side of the family, my grandfather and a lot of my uncles did have this disease, very much have it, and were pretty well-known drunks. And so my picture of what an alcoholic was... It looked like those guys, you know, people that would either plan to be there and not be there or be there and you'd wish they weren't there because of the way they were behaving or uh, come late or do a lot of embarrassing things. And so alcoholism was not something that, that I really, you know, wanted to have anything to do with. We also had a town drunk. We had a little town. We had a little town drunk. And this was like in Andy of Mayberry, the guy that would go spend the night in the jail and he'd get his three hots and a cot and then he'd go back out and kind of wander around town during the day. And so that was the other example I had of alcoholism. So um, I knew that that was nothing that I wanted to have anything uh, to do with. 
I had my first drink. It was a, a sip of beer at a Cincinnati Reds ball game when I was 15 years old. My mom gave me a sip of beer. And I, the, the one thing I remember about that was that I didn't like the taste of beer. And I couldn't think why people would want to drink this stuff. And I didn't have enough of it to really get an effect of it. But I, again, made up my mind at that point that this really wasn't anything that was very interesting to me. Within just a few months after that, I had my first real drink, which was gin, and it was warm gin out of a bottle at my girlfriend's girlfriend's house, and a friend of mine and, and uh, his girlfriend and my girlfriend and I were there, and uh, the two things that first night, one was to have my first real drink of alcohol to the point where, I, where it had an effect on me, and the second thing was to kiss a girl, and I liked the alcohol a lot better than than kissing the girl. It made a bigger impression on me. Although I, you know, the two were really intimately tied up for years after that in my, in my story. But, uh, you know, I had that same experience that Bill Wilson describes when he had his first drink at Newport, Rhode Island before he took off for the war. I, I finally felt like this is how people are supposed to feel. You know, I wasn't ill at ease. I could, I could talk. I wasn't self-conscious at all. Um, it just felt like this is the way human beings are supposed to feel. And I didn't obviously cognitively at that point put two and two together, but I thought this is something really cool. This is really special. And so within a, really a matter of probably months, uh, I was a regular weekend binge drinker all throughout high school. And I, and I, I don't think I ever really took a social drink in my life because I don't think you can drink socially when you're having your friends, older brothers buy you beer. You're sitting behind the bowling alley, drinking a case of beer on Friday night, drinking a case of beer on Saturday night, staggering back up the railroad tracks home. Uh, and that was, you know, that's how I began drinking and it sort of went on from there. Did some of the usual things that the kids do, wrecked some cars, um, you know, got into some minor scrapes with the police, um, got into college, and um, I had a roommate there. I didn't have a car in college, but I had a roommate that had a car, and he let me drive his car because he couldn't drink as much as I could. Um, so he let me drive the car, and so I wrecked it for him, and then he bought a new car, and then I wrecked that one for him. And My wife's never seen me drink, so I'm not sure she's really convinced that she needs Al-Anon, but I think my college roommate probably does. I, <laughs> that, that might be a way to... <laughs> to make amends to him finally. <laughs> and it is funny, I did go back years later to make amends to him, and um, one of the things he said was, I, you know, I never thought you were an alcoholic. I really admired the way you could drink, because you could drink a lot more than the rest of us. You know, I would just drink and throw up, and then I'd quit, and I'd say, that's because you lack self-discipline. You know, you need to throw up and drink some more, and that's how you develop the tolerance to be able to drink the way I did, but, you know, that's that's alcoholism. Well, I, you know, I went through college and, and did okay and, and then, uh, you know, got into medical school and it was a, you know, binge drinking pattern. You know, I was talking to somebody earlier today. I, I do some work with aviators and, and it's very similar, uh, you know, sort of mindset. You, you work hard, you, you play hard and that play hard includes drink hard. And that's the way, that's the way I did it in medical school. And I had my first DUI in medical school <clears throat> and, um, it, it occurred on, it, in a little town near where I was going to school. And it turns out that one of my med school roommates' mother was an attorney in that town. And so, you know, the logical thing to do would be to call up, you know, the lawyer and have her bail you out of jail. But I was so full of shame that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want anybody to know, you know, what had happened. So I managed to get a hold of my folks, and my brother was deputized to come and bail me out of jail the next day. Which And I was able to return the favor a couple years later, so now we're even. Um, it was funny, too, because in our family, it was very matter-of-fact. The phone rings at 8 o'clock in the morning. I just come off call, and my dad says, Donnie, Mike's in jail. Go get him. Okay, I knew what to do. You know, that was a pretty normal thing.
My roommate's uh, mother also had been the, the former law partner of the judge that I went before for my DUI, so I don't have a DUI on my record. It's reckless operation. So so now when I'm interviewing patients and they tell me they don't have a DUI, and I say, did you ever have a reckless operation that was a DUI that was pled down? And they look at me like, how did you know about that? <laughs> so, um, so we know those kinds of things. So I got through there. I was in a, I was in the uh, Navy's health care profession scholarship program in medical school. And, uh, and so when I came out of med school, I went on active duty in the Navy and uh, did a tour as a general medical officer. And then I did a tour as a flight surgeon with the P-3 squadron out of Hawaii. And um, we, our deployment was in the Philippines uh, at QB Point in AS. And... Uh, a lot of drinking went on over there and uh you know and actually a lot of pretty good memories I, you know i don't say that all of the things that happened when i was drinking were bad there's certainly some some happy memories some funny memories and things like that but i drank a lot on deployment and I, and i remember when i was going through flight surgery school they gave us a little handout that said um the flight surgeon and this is, I think, actually from the RAF. Somebody was talking about being from the RAF last night. I think this was an RAF flight surgeon guy that said, the flight surgeon should not be teetotal, but neither should he lead the way. And I got half of that right. <laughs> we got back from deployment, and um, we went out to dinner. My wife at the time and I went out to, went out to dinner with the operations officer, and um, he hands me the wine list and says, here, Doc, you're the, you're the expert. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, no thanks, I've I, I decided to lay off for a little while. And uh, he's, he just spontaneously offers, boy, I'm glad to hear that, Doc. A lot of us have been really worried about you. Now, some of you might remember the tailhook scandal of the early 1990s. When a bunch of naval aviators are worried that you're drinking too much, you might want to take a look at that. You know, There may be something there to take a look at. Well, I did stay off of it for about eight months, which was long enough to convince me that I couldn't be an alcoholic. So when we had a dining out that fall, I went ahead and drank the toasts with everybody and went to the bar and drank scotch and smoked cigars and um, and ended up, you know, right back uh, in the same kind of behavior, which went on for a while after that. After my um, flight surgery tour, I, I did a residency in psychiatry at the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth. And... Um, after I finished my residency, I, and actually I went into treatment right at the end of my residency, and, and when I was probably about six months uh, sober, I started to think that I really didn't need to be a psychiatrist anymore. And I read something that somebody had written years ago, an old psychoanalyst that had written, those who are satisfied with improvement seek treatment. Those who demand a cure seek training. So I, I, I think really, honestly, looking back, the reason I wanted to be a psychiatrist is because I didn't know what the hell was the matter with me, and I thought maybe I could figure it out if I did. And sure enough, I did figure it out, you know, because I ended up getting into treatment for alcoholism, and I think that was wrong with me. Luckily, both the Navy and AA agreed on the idea of no major changes in the first year after uh, treatment, so I stayed with it and have enjoyed, uh, you know, working as a psychiatrist since then. But uh, I did, uh, without going into a lot of details, which are pretty similar to, you know, probably a lot of stories here, during the last year or so of my drinking, my, my wife left, um, which got her out of the way. You know, there were no more impediments. I could drink as much as I wanted, which I did, until I got to the point where I didn't want to anymore and I couldn't stop. And I did all that stuff in the third chapter to try to stop, except for voluntary admission to a sanitarium until that point came when I was admitted to treatment at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Uh, but, uh, you know, really thought, you know, and I, and, and I had known, somebody asked me earlier last night, I think it was Howard asked me, what, what did you tell yourself about drinking? Did you tell yourself that you liked the taste of it? And I never really did. And I never told myself anything until I knew that I was an alcoholic. And the way I learned that, 
was the Navy had sent me to a two-week course to learn about alcoholism. And during that two-week course, we sat in a group with the patients, and we listened to their stories, and we were asked to share our stories. And one of the guys, there were ten of us who went to Great Lakes to this program, and five of us were out drunk every night. And one of the five of us in the next morning in group, when they said, tell us about your drinking, told the truth. And, and they made this moron stay for us six weeks. You know, so... <clears throat> So we knew the right answer was, well, I'm a social drinker, and, uh, you know, I have a few glasses of wine with dinner, but uh, beyond that, you know, and we're all sitting there bleary-eyed, you know, and probably blowing alcohol at people. Uh, but I, I, I learned that, uh, how, to, how to keep from getting caught, because I learned how all these guys got caught. They, you know, that was Sears School for Drunks for me. That was the place where you go to avoid uh, capture. So they, I learned, A, that I was an alcoholic because I was just like these other guys, and B, I knew how to keep the Navy from catching me. And in fact, I went to that same course again. But for five years, and for some reason I've heard this over and over again from people, for five years I knew I was an alcoholic and, and kept drinking, thinking I could control it. I went through all those things of trying to control it um, and, until I finally got to that uh, to that jumping off point again. And, and I was, and I remember this very, very uh, vividly after um, doing all those things, standing in the back of my house in Portsmouth, Virginia, looking at the tree down in the back of our lot, which is where I was going to go and to sit behind that tree and shoot myself, knowing that nobody would find me for a few weeks. And, um, and, and again, just, just like that little voice, you know, that John talked about and others, suddenly this voice came, you know, you could go to treatment. And I, and I had been sending a lot of people to treatment. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, I, I drink a lot more than this person does. And yet this person needs to go to treatment. And it never occurred to me that treatment might be something I could do. So I went in. My boss happened to be an addiction psychiatrist. And I went in and, and told him that I needed some help, that I, you know, I, that I couldn't handle it anymore, and um, I was an alcoholic. And he said, well, you know, people don't usually malinger alcoholism. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're telling me you're an alcoholic, you probably are an alcoholic, he said. But, you know, to get you admitted, I need to get some information from you. So he took a little history, and sure enough... And um, he said, but, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy, and I'm a specialist in this, and we go to the opera together, and we drink a little champagne, and, you know, I've never thought you had a problem. And so well, here's the difference between you and me. We leave the opera, you know, after, our, you know, first of all, during the intermission between the first two acts, we have a glass of champagne. You go back and enjoy the second act. The second act, I'm going, geez, when's this thing going to be over so I can get that next glass of champagne? You know, and then the second thing, then we go home at night. I said, you go home. You know, hang your tuxedo up in the closet, brush your teeth, kiss your wife, lay down and go to bed. And I go home, wide my tuxedo up, throw it in the corner, pull on my blue jeans, head off for the bars and pound beers until the bars close. And I had two lives. I had this life as the Navy psychiatry resident, and then I had this life as the drunk in the local bars. And the worlds were converging because I was starting to see guys in my clinic who recognized me from the bars, these young sailors I was drinking with. Hey, Doc, remember me? And that was scaring me because I didn't want those two worlds to come together. I, you know, I, I liked, I didn't like it, but I felt like I had to maintain this separation between my two worlds and they were coming together. And I remember as I was confessing to my first friend, and this is like, the, I turned myself in on a Friday. I was going to leave for treatment the next week. On Saturday night, this friend of mine had invited me to come over and have Easter dinner with him and his wife. And you guys know how it is. I was thinking, God, is this guy going to still want to be my friend after he finds out about this? And you know, I told him, and he said, oh, okay, well, we're eating at 7, you know, whatever, come on over. 
<clears throat> and I remember the feeling that I had, and, and I knew that alcoholism was a disease, and I knew that I had a genetic predisposition to this disease, and I knew that it wasn't my fault that I inherited this metabolic peculiarity that made me drink the way I did. What I didn't know was a part of that disease was how lonely I felt. And I felt like everybody had just left me. And in fact, what had happened was I'd just gotten all these things out of my way that had been obstructing my ability to drink the way I wanted to drink, which included my wife, all my friends who wanted to do things with me, my family. And I was thinking there's something seriously flawed and wrong with me. And this is how histrionic I, I could be. Why am I so unlovable? You know. And it took me a long time to get over that. And that feeling of loneliness, I thought there was something really bad wrong with me other than this disease. And that was one of the things that, that I really had to, to work through, I think, and that was the idea that this disease was the problem and that through the fellowship and through AA I've learned, you know, that uh, we can become lovable again and, and that, that that was something that was part of recovery for me. Well, I hit my bottom under the uh, Elizabeth River and I ended up in the Naval Hospital of Bethesda and... Um, and I went through my treatment there, and then I finished my residency when I came back after my six-week elective at Bethesda, and uh, and actually I came right back to T Group, and, I, and it was funny that my my uh, my boss had introduced me to an anesthesia resident who had who had uh, hit his bottom in a near-death experience, um, and unfortunately then and now for the Navy there's still this there's still this barrier between the good drug alcohol and all these other bad drugs, so since his drug was other than alcohol he had to be administratively separated from the Navy, but while he was waiting to do that. He was working in the hospital in the research division. And I went over to talk with him, and he was angry that my boss had given me his name without his permission. And he said, you have to jealously guard your anonymity because this can really hurt you. And, I, you know. and for me, it was such a relief that I was good. I wanted to take out an ad in the paper to say, hey, I'm a drunk. You know, this is great. I just feel such a relief that I don't have to hide anymore. Uh, so that was, to me, the two poles of, of anonymity that, I, that I've seen in this. And I, I've tried to keep mine sort of closer to the idea of transparency because I think that has kept me safe. Um, but anyway, I, I, I transferred from there to Pensacola, and I was immediately told to go to this Thursday night doctor's group in Pensacola. And I got there, and I was sort of you know lost and looking around, and this huge... Dreadnought pulls up this huge gray Cadillac convertible, and this guy gets out smoking a big pipe, which he doesn't smoke anymore. <clears throat> and he comes up to me and he says, "Do you have a sponsor?" I said, "No." Well, first he says, "Are you Tony?" Yes, I'm Tony. Hi, I'm Bob. Do you have a sponsor? No, I'm your sponsor. You have a big book? Yeah. Read the first two chapters and be at my house at two o'clock on Saturday, and we'll start working. And that's how I started working the steps. And um, and that kind of brings me to the to the point of what I want to talk about today, and that is uh, the uh, tenth and eleventh steps, uh, which I'll, I'll get to in in due order. Except that the eleventh step was actually the first step that I really started working. I think, and um, uh, one of the speakers this morning talked about um, working the third step through the eleventh step, and. <clears throat> Before I started drinking, I had this idea about myself that I wanted to go into the ministry. And uh, and I often think about that letter that Carl Jung wrote to Bill W. Uh, about uh, his idea that the reason AA worked so well was because uh, there was a thirsting f- for God. And he talked about spiritus contra spiritum, you know, the, the play on words. You know, we use spirituality to confront the spirits of alcohol. And, you know, I'd had this thirsting for spirituality, I think, even as a kid, because I, I was really studying for the ministry until I discovered alcohol. And then who needs it? You know, this is what I really need right here. 
So I didn't have a lot of problems with God, but I didn't have any of the infrastructure in place. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to do. All I remember was, you know, now I lay me down to sleep from, you know, being a kid. And so my sponsor basically had to tell me what to do. So what he told me to do was go home tonight, get down on your knees, you know, look in the big book and it tells you what to pray about, you know, and then when you get up in the morning, you start your day with a prayer. And that's really how I started the, the kind of ritual of my program. And I, to me, ritual is important. Ritual is right in the middle of the word spirituality. And, and I think that that part of my program is really important. The fact that there's some structure to it. Uh, the big book says we alcoholics are undisciplined. So we ask God, God to discipline us in this simple, these simple ways that we've outlined. And, and uh, I needed that kind of discipline and structure. It's the first thing I did, started to pray twice a day. I went to a lot of meetings those first few years. I averaged about 9 to 13 meetings a week for the first two or three years. Um, had a home group, uh, went to the doctor's group in Pensacola, uh, worked through the steps. The third step we did just like somebody talked about Dr. Bob. We got down on our knees together and we said the third step prayer. I didn't have a great epiphany at that point, but I did feel something, a little incremental release that occurred then. Um, then into the fourth and fifth step, uh, just the way it's been talked about today and uh, just the way the, the big book uh, lays it out, resentments, fear, and sexual behavior. And, um, and there's a lot of all those in there to deal with. <clears throat> and then the six and seven steps, which really are important. And, you know, I, I, my home group when I moved back to Virginia the last time was a big book stu- or a 12 and 12 study group. And I always love that part in the sixth step chapter where it says, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. I never knew what that meant at first, but I really do, I think, understand it now. And it's certainly a lot better, too, after hearing John share about it today. So then the eighth and ninth steps, the amends, um, most of them went very well. The toughest one was with my sister, who um, I'd had a falling out with about ten years before. We hadn't spoken for ten years. I mean, I, she was in my my first wedding because my mother pretty much begged me to have her in the wedding. We hadn't spoken. So I... Uh, you know, all my amends were done exactly as, as, as has been described. My sponsor and I would sit down, we'd talk about, is it time to make this amend yet? Can you do this without harming other people? Have you forgiven that other person yet? Because if you expect forgiveness, you need to be willing to forgive. And then here's what, here's what you're going to say and rehearse that and go out and do it. And, uh, so all of them were great because most of my family and friends and others would have, you know, glad you're sober. This is great. You know, we either didn't know you had a problem or we did and we're really glad you're doing well, except for my sister who after I'd gone through my thing expecting almost you know kind of eliciting this okay now tell me what a great guy i am she goes well you forgot about this and remember the time you did that and you know what you were a selfish little prick before you took your first drink you know so i had so uh that brings me a little bit into what the 10th step talks about which is restraint of tongue and pen you know and 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 (laughs) hands you know but you know the idea was it was to clean up my side of the street and now we have a wonderful relationship the two of us i mean we she calls me uh, she sends gifts and i send gifts we we're very close now because of that um so that was the eighth and ninth and then uh you know, we, uh, we've heard about and uh, about the, the promises which come after the ninth step um, in the big book. And then right after that, it says this thought brings us to step ten. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit because I think what I really have to say that's important comes out of the big book, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. That seems self-evident to me now, but I I can remember um, when I was 
going through the steps for the first time. And I had a discussion with my now ex-wife, my first wife, and she knew a little bit about uh, 12-step recovery. And she asked me what step I was on. I told her, well, I, don't know. I guess I could say I'm on the 11th step. And she said, then you're almost done. And, you know, that's maybe seemed like a reasonable idea to people, but, you know, that's not really how it has to work for me. Um, because it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. There's the 12 steps in a day, in a, in a, in a, in a paragraph, you know, trust God, clean house, help others all right there. Um, and that's what I have to do a lot of, uh, because I, I'm not entirely into that, you know, restraint of tongue and pen phase yet where I don't have to go back and I hate making amends. So I don't like to do, have to do this stuff, but technology is great. I have my sponsor's phone number at the very top of my speed dial list here. So when I need to discuss it with somebody, I can get right on the phone and do that. And a lot of times I actually talk to him before I react to things now, not always. And then I have to go back and do those amends that we have to do. Um, you know, I just went through something and I can't really go into details about it, but something, you know, between my wife and myself and some of you are married and, and some of you probably realize that there are certain times when there is no right answer. Okay, there's no right thing to say. Okay, and I always want to say something, you know, and that oftentimes requires amends when that happens. Uh, <clears throat> well, there was, and my sponsor's here, and he'll remember this, there, there's a salient moment within the last couple months when there was a lot of things that I was going to say and a lot of things I was going to do. And what I did instead was to pull out my phone, hit that top button and talk with him about it, didn't react, actually went back and made amends for some of my behaviors. And, uh, you know, uh, as an unexpected and probably, uh, you know, unintended consequence of just trying to stay sober, uh, I think our marriage improved just an increment that where it could have easily gone completely the other way. So, I mean, this stuff is really practical and it really works and it goes way beyond, you know, just the possibility that I would take a drink today, which is the ultimate reason why we have to do these things. Um, I, you know, I would say that, um, the, the next promise really is, after that, it says, And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, including alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. And uh, and I think in in the most most cases that's really true. Um, I think in most cases sanity has really returned. In that paragraph I read you, one of the most important words to me is when. Okay, it says, Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up. What that tells me is, you know, I'm not an unusually sick individual. It doesn't say if you're one of those really, really sick people, they're going to have this stuff happen to you. It says if you're a human being who's in recovery, this is going to happen to you, probably a lot. So here's what you do when that happens. And so that's that's what I know to do. Some of my favorite quotes or passages from the big book are in this little five-page section on the 10th and 11th steps. On page 85, it says, It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. 
I was really glad to come to that part of the big book uh, the first time I got through that because for some reason, I mean, I'd made up my mind that it was necessary for me to be in recovery, but I'd sort of resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be this little brainless automaton that just, you know, mouthed the A slogans and never had another original thought. Actually, that's true. That actually happened. But that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. But what it really means is that I can make decisions, and, I, and sometimes I can trust my decisions if I've done these things first and ask, you know, for God's will in my life other than the way it was before. So the 10th step really is a step I, I really have to do every day. I have to do it a lot during the day. Another place where technology helped me out, just as a little thing that my sponsor taught me early on was, he said, buy a little watch that beeps every hour. And every time the watch beeps, you need to stop and take an inventory. Because sure enough, you've done something in that hour that you need to either make amends for or you need to pray to have removed. And, and that really was a helpful thing for me in the first little while, first year or so of recovery was to be get in the habit Again, we're not in the habit of doing a, a, a self-inventory. Uh, so to get in that habit of doing that, being reminded, where it was very easy for me then and still is to just get swept along by the day uh, and to let my emotions run me, to say, oh, wait, I need to stop. Look around. Have I done any of these things? Do I need to make amends? Have I harmed anyone? Do I need to uh, help someone? Get out of myself. And so that was uh, that was a good thing for me in the in the first little while. Um, it talks in the 1212 about the different kinds of inventories that we can do, and I've done all the different kinds. It talks about the spot check inventory, this, your watch beeps, you know. It talks about the inventory we do at the end of the day when we review the day to see whether uh, any of these things have come up. It talks about the, the bigger inventory that we sometimes do, and I've actually gone back with my sponsor and done another written inventory, whether you want to call it. AA's left to debate. Well, that's not a 12 step, that's another fourth. No, that's a, whatever it is, to do an inventory, to sit down and go through that fourth step process again. Um, and it really is amazing the stuff that collects, you know, even with daily inventory, the stuff that I can find to really go back and clear out again. So the wreckage of my past uh, is much more recent, much less uh, dramatic maybe than it used to be, but there's plenty of it still to clean up. So, uh, so those periodic inventories are good. And then it talks about retreats. And in some ways, this is a retreat for me to come here once a year because I really feel spiritually recharged after I leave um, this IDAA meeting. So uh, this is my tenth uh, meeting uh, that I've come to, and uh, I hope I can continue to come every year. It really is important to me to do that as part of my um, part of my practice. Um, so that's the tenth step, I think, pretty much. The eleventh step for me is, um, you know, again something that goes back way back because you know I, I was interested in meditation very early on. I, I mean, I was interested in Herbert Benson's book, the relaxation response, and transcendental meditation, and you know, lots of different mindfulness programs over the years and things like that. So I knew knew something about it, but I never. It's it's like that uh, thing the twelve and twelve. Where, you know, shucks, someone says this is not practical, but you know, it really is. It's really important for me, and, and I like the way that twelve and twelve describes meditation as the way as a way to clear the channel. And, um, as a way to improve the conscious contact with, with my higher power. Uh, and, and I, I like to view it as meditation is listening and prayer is talking or asking. That's another way for me to think about it. Um, and I, and I meditate a lot of different ways now. And, and, you know, I, I do a sitting meditation sometimes when I make time to do that. Um, when I'm jogging, sometimes I'll do that. And I've done it a lot of different ways over the years. Sometimes I'll do it by reciting a prayer. The St. Francis prayer is what Bill puts into the 12 and 12, which is a nice long one that I've never been able to memorize. But I can do the third step prayer from memory or the seventh step prayer. And sometimes it's just thy will be done is my prayer. 
that I do. Uh, and that's probably the most important prayer. That's actually the 11-step prayer. And you'll notice through the big book, the prayers get shorter and shorter until the 11-step prayers, thy will be done. And that's all there is to it. Um, and I, I can give you one example of how that uh, has worked for me that really is, I still, I'm still amazed at the fact that things, that this happened. I uh, got remarried, got, got divorced from my first wife, <clears throat> and somebody talked about unanswered prayers. I, my whole, one of my reasons for going into treatment was I thought I could get this marriage back together. And uh, one of the counselors um, in treatment told me, just point blank, if you go back into that marriage, it's going to kill you. You know? Well, don't beat around, around the bush. What do you really mean? You know? Uh, and she was right, and that was going to kill me because that was a very, very sick marriage. It, you know, it occurred in the context of a very active alcoholism, uh, and uh, would have probably killed me. But we got divorced, and um, and I'm remarried, and we have a three and a half year old daughter now. And when my daughter was born, um, you know, I was in the delivery room, and I, I still think there's some value to the to the old tradition of pacing and chain smoking in the waiting room for fathers. I, you know, that'll never come back. But you know, being in the in the delivery room with, as a psychiatrist who used to do you know deliveries back in med school and internship, but it's been a long time. So I know I know what I can remember is all the things that can go wrong. You know, and I and I'm not sure I really understood a lot of the other stuff that was going on, except that my wife had an epidural and it only took on one side, and so they kept pumping drugs into her and she kept having pain and then there was some trouble with some bleeding and then <clears throat> then the, the OBGYN says do you want to come down here and watch the baby being born and I said hell no I don't want to come down there and see the baby being born so you know they bring this baby out and here's this little you know sort of purple wet looking thing and I didn't really look right to me and then they rush the baby over and they're all whispering and doing all this stuff over in the corner and all the most horrible things are coming to mind you know what could have happened and then something very very bizarre happened to me I suddenly said you know God thy will be done you know whatever's going to happen please just give me the strength to be able to to handle that and and I didn't pray the kind of intercessory prayer that I usually used to pray, which was, please, God, if you just let this baby turn out okay, then I'll do whatever you want, you know. Or or a little more mature, you know, if it be thy will, let this baby be okay. It was really uncharacteristic of me in my normal state to be able to say that honestly to God, thy will be done, give me the strength to to, to handle whatever it is. And what it was was a perfect baby that, you know, had good APGARs and she's just been a great kid. But I, I remember that moment very clearly because, I, and it occurred to me in real time that, you know what, this is totally AA. This is not me at all. I don't normally think this way. This is, this is the gift of recovery to me. That not only do I not think about drinking, but I'm not trying to be God today. I'm just trying to do, you know, let God's will be uh, done. And so to me, that's, that's the, that's the value of this. Uh, the, you know, to me, I have to do the 10th and 11th steps. My sponsor was hoping that I could separate the steps. I think to me, they're still pretty tied up together. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there's the inventory part in the 10th step. There's the meditation and prayer part in the 12th step or the uh, 11th step. But to me, it's all about staying in constant contact with my higher power, trying to maintain that, uh, which is a struggle still. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's very easy for me to get swept along, uh, during the day and to react to things. But I, I'm getting better, you know, and, and the, and the beauty of this thing is that I get better with practice. 
And, and I don't know if it's, you know, alcoholic dementia to some extent or if it really is true that this people sneak in and, and substitute new pages or rewrite this book at night sometimes when I'm not looking. But it's still a cool thing that I can read this and I can go, you know, I don't think that was in there before. I don't remember that part. So I read this book a lot and I think it's really important to do this. I think it's really important to, uh, to keep reminding myself of these basic things. A friend of mine in AA in Virginia up there and some of you from Virginia know who I'm talking about, Alan, always says, there's no, there's no, AA 102, there's AA 101. Everything that I need to do uh, to get sober is what I need to do to stay sober. So I, I still try to work the steps the way I was taught to work them according to the big book by my sponsor who learned it from his sponsor, who learned it from his sponsor all the way back to a couple of guys talking across the kitchen table in Akron, Ohio. So um, I, I hope you know that that helps uh, to let folks know a little bit about what the tenth and eleven steps mean to me, and if I've uh, offered anything that can be helpful uh, to another alcoholic, then I've done what I came here to do. I've tried to keep my ego out of the way. My sponsor's not going to tell me whether I've succeeded at that or not, and I thank you very much. <clears throat> my name's Burns. I'm an alcoholic. Tony, thank you. Uh, before I get started, let me just uh, say how much gratitude I have for another year of getting a chance to see all the old faces and get to know some new ones. Uh, uh, at 68 years of age, things get a lot more precious. Things that I used to take for granted, uh, I no longer take for granted. Uh, about three weeks ago, I was at my 50th high school class reunion, and I've always kind of taken those people for granted for an awful long period of time. And as I sat there that night, I realized that uh, that how much I loved them and that this was uh, a goodbye for most of us, that, that would we probably would not have another one because we'd meet every 10 years. So this has become very precious for me. I was not born and bred in IDAA. I never knew that doctors existed in, in AA when I got sober. Um, there were four doctors in Kentucky who were in AA uh, in Louisville. And they were basically a-holes to start with when they were drinking. They were a-holes when they were sober. And, uh, and, and, and that's basically what they were. I mean, and they didn't have a damn thing I wanted. And, and, uh, I didn't know what the hell it was I wanted anyway. You know, for that period of time, I just kind of wandered around knowing the only thing I didn't want to ever do again was drink whiskey and take drugs. Uh, and didn't, I had an absolute faith that that would work, but I knew someone would have to teach me how to do that. Uh, at seven years in sobriety, uh, or seven years from my last drink, I was asked to come and speak at IDAA, and it was in Savannah. And that's the first time that I'd ever been involved with that many doctors uh, and fell in love with it. Um, I had a, uh, a sponsor. My first sponsor was a, a kind of a... And I mean this, it sounds funny, but this guy was kind of a sociopathic, insane type of guy. He wasn't just a tough sponsor, he was that, but he was really pretty, he was one step below being psychotic. And uh, he, he was God's gift to me because he taught me obedience. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I was willing to be obedient, but he was willing to teach it to me too. So, uh, and he always said there was no reason for doctors to get together. He said, doctors are no different from anybody else. They just ought to go to regular AA and forget all this other stuff. And I pretty much bought that. Uh, hell, I bought anything he said anyway, so it wasn't that I really, I hadn't even thought about it one way or another, but whatever he said, that was what I believed, and that's the way it was. But when I got to IDAA in Savannah, I found something that was really special. Uh, it didn't take the place of, it wasn't the same thing as, 
It was just a part, it was just a part with and an additional piece that I have come to cherish greatly. Uh, so it's always good to be back here. Uh, it's been a great day listening to the stories and listening to the steps. Uh, I think any conference in my experience that doesn't include the steps, uh, I just don't think it really gets the job done as best we can do it. So I'm really grateful that was done. In fact, I think this entire program, my opinion, uh, is that this entire program has been structured extremely well to uh, educate us and also to bring us uh, to our spiritual roots. My privilege that I've been extended is to talk to you about the 12th step. Uh, I will share with you my experience, strength, and hope about it as I, as I feel it and, and uh, have insight into it today. Uh, there's an old saw in AA that says that the first thing an alcoholic gets back after he quits drinking is his opinions. So I'll try my best not to, not to have all my opinions. And if there, are, if there are some, I think the majority of them are pretty much born out of blood, sweat, tears, joy, and laughter. Uh, it's been a hell of a journey. I heard somebody say one time when I was in recovery, they thought they had another drink left in them when I was in treatment. It was one of the, uh, uh, one of the therapists said they thought they had another drink in them. They might have another drink in them, but they didn't have another recovery. Well, I don't think I have another drink in me, and it isn't relevant what anybody else thinks. I'm really convinced I don't have another drink, but for the first time, I'm beginning to really deeply understand what they meant by not, by not having another recovery. The second hardest thing I've had to do is recover. The first hardest thing I ever had to do was drink like a normal person. That just didn't happen. It just couldn't happen. It never did happen. But this journey of recovery, with all of the ste- all the feelings and all the things that go with it, uh, I got to tell you, it's uh, without the tools that that I've been given, that each of us has been given. I don't think I don't I couldn't do it. Uh, it just involves too many feelings, too much pain, too much discipline, and too much surrender. Uh, so I will share with you some of my opinions and a lot of my experiences based on, on that. I will tell you that recovery is an evolution. Uh, and if you hear me talk five years from now, assuming I'm alive and assuming I have don't have any dementia, my cognition is okay, I don't think I'll be in the same spot. And that's based on what I've known over the last X number of years, which have been, I've got a lot of years in my heart. and uh, And I can tell you from looking back at it, it's a constant process of evolution. Uh, Jelnick talked about this to some degree when he talked about the progression of alcoholism. And then he talked about the progression of recovery. But he shut it off at a very early premature period because he was really talking about, in retrospect, the post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which uh, is, again, withdrawal, and it can last for an extended period of time, up to four, five, six years at least, but I can tell you from my experience that this thing goes on and goes on and evolves and evolves, and it's never a static state. At least it hadn't been in my life. Uh, so it is an evolution. Uh, I will tell you that you may not be where I am today. You may be past this. You may be short of that. Uh, if you've been through what I'll talk about, then pray that I get through it and and have the same joy you have. If you haven't gotten there, then with an open mind, embrace it, take it home, talk to your sponsor, and see where you want to go with it. I will tell you, it's an individual journey. It's an absolute individual journey. You can't be where I am at this moment in all probability, and I can't be where you are exactly at this moment. 
while it is an individual journey, it must never, if you're an alcoholic of my type, it must never be taken alone. It will be your journey, your peace, my peace, my journey, but it must never be taken alone. Father Martin said that the 12th step is the crowning glory of AA. The crowning glory of AA. I had some heroes. Uh, praise God in this program, not only do we condone them, we promote them. I had heroes when I was in treatment. I've had heroes throughout my recovery. Father Martin, and you'll hear one of them in the morning, Sandy Beach. I used, to, I mean, I listened to Sandy Beach's tapes for the first four years of my recovery. Uh, and I'm so, I was so excited to see that he's going to be here. He was one of my heroes. And I, I had a lot of heroes. And Father Martin was one of my heroes. And he said it's the crowning glory of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12th step of AA. And I will share with you what my insight is into it today. And knowing that it will continue to evolve and having the faith that the principles that I've learned from you and learned from our textbook uh, will make this journey worth traveling, even in some of its dark spots. The 12th step is divided into three distinct parts. It's divided into three distinct parts. The first part is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Of course, the second part is we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, and the third part is practice these principles in all our affairs. But they are three distinct parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of this, these steps, it's interesting it doesn't say we have a spiritual awakening as a result of having a sponsor. It does not say we have a spiritual awakening as a result of going to four meetings a day. It says we have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It couldn't be much more specific. I'm a literalist. I'm also someone given more than one inch of chain would hang himself. So I've taken this, this book and have absolutely studied it and continue to conform to it and repeat it as though it were written in stone as simple as it's stated and as difficult as it is for me to do sometimes because of my self-centeredness. I'm now at a point in time where with this gyroscope to reality, I can now read about things like the Da Vinci Code and either not get too pissed or too scared to continue to read the story because before it would have been heresy or it would have been the truth and either way I would have committed to it. But I do have this way of having this gyroscope to reality and God can let me or I have come to believe that God gives me the not only the ability but the desire to expand. Uh, it was through these, this spiritual awakening as he result of these steps I came to know of the spiritual experience of having a sponsor. The spiritual experience of attending meetings. The full spirituality of this program which I could not appreciate until I'd had the spiritual awakening as he results these steps. And let me tell you the experience. Uh, qualified Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, until I got in medical school. Hell, I, I, some of you heard my story. I was laying in bed looking up saying, God, if I ever have a son. I was going to college the next day. I said, God, if I ever have a son, I want him to be just like me. You know, I mean, I was that good a kid. Well, I got met, but I had a, I had a gene. Somebody once said, Burns, you didn't have a gene pool. You had a gene puddle. <laughs> and, I, and I can believe that. But I had a gene pool that sucked. And I mean, it was, it was, it was all set up to be, you know. And, um, 
I didn't grow up in a home with alcohol and drugs. I've got a daughter who's 43, who's been in AA 23 years, and a son who's 21, been in AA for 20 years. Uh, so they got out. What did I say? Did I say that? Did I say I'm, it's clicking in, isn't it? Yeah. I got a son who's 38 who's been in AA for 21 years. That's what it is. That's right. He had an APGAR rating of two and it was due to his alcoholism. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, so it's all there, you know. And so I was born in a home where I didn't have any alcohol or drugs. Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, started medical school, uh, started taking amphetamine to study, kicked out of medical school before graduation, four psychiatric hospitalizations, internship and residency, went in the Army, almost got put in Leavenworth for taking amphetamine, uh, came home and quit taking amphetamine, was off of it for almost a year. Uh, got back on it and they took my gallbladder out and said it was probably due to the amphetamine, told me I needed to quit taking amphetamine, so I quit in 1969 and I started drinking because I didn't drink before that. I drank for eight years in 1977, I was drinking a quart of whiskey a night. Uh, had one of the most successful practices in Louisville, Kentucky, had no uh, professional smoke being blowed in my shorts and I mean to tell you, I was at a complete bottom. There was nothing inside me but pain. Uh, and it reached the point where the pain was not even recognizable as pain. There was nothing. Uh, I remember one of those periods of going through that was when I absolutely realized that I was not a doctor. The best, and when I came home from treatment, I reviewed all of my records for eight years. I had one partner at the time, and we reviewed them, and I practiced technically correct medicine. It would have passed any QA. It didn't pass my heart and soul because I knew for the last six months I'd taken a technician into the examining room. I'd not taken a doctor. I was withdrawing throughout each day because I never drank in my office. Drank a quart of whiskey every night, but I never drank in my office. And I was trying to get out and get home before I went into full-blown withdrawal. Couldn't talk to you about uh, your pregnant daughter or putting your father and mother in a nursing home. I could listen to your heart, and I could listen to your lungs, and I could look in your eyeballs, and I could practice technically correct medicine, but I'd cease to be a doctor. And as I understood and believed a doctor should be, and frankly do today, uh, for me. Uh, so I put the gun in my mouth, didn't pull the trigger because of my children. The terror came back. I was ready to go to, to God. Actually, I was going to Charlton Heston in heaven because that's who God was, and that, and that would be. It didn't matter. At least I was going to get there, and the pain would stop. Uh, perverted piece of information, but that's how I felt. Uh, asked to go to treatment, was sent to New York City. They detoxed me over a three-week period of time, shipped me to Atlanta. I was in Ridgeview Institute when Doug ran Ridgeview. Was in Mar when that was the residential program. It was the best three months of my life. Best single three months of my life. I was trying to do the right thing. The dignity was starting to return. I really felt that there was an answer for me that someone could show me what it was going to be. I came home from treatment and got into AA. It was the best and worst of times. Best of times for the fellowship. Worst of times because nobody read the big book and nobody worked the steps. It was not defiance on my part. I wasn't taught to do that. I became completely obedient to my sponsor, and for 10 years, I worked a three and a third step program. The first three steps and a third of the twelfth step. That's all I knew to do. As I'd like to say, I became a lethal weapon for God. 
and ran everywhere. And they said, here he comes, drink a beer, you'll drag your ass off to treatment anyway. And that's kind of the way it was. Being a doctor in Louisville and the only drunk that made any sense, only doctor drunk that made any sense, I mean, I re- reached almost uh, messianic proportions, at least in my own mind, within those 10 years. And I was called on by virtually everybody because I was a recovering doctor when there were virtually none. During that time, as I say, I worked a three and a third step. Uh, at the uh, end of uh, ten years, I did some self-centered things that damn near destroyed me, nearly destroyed my wife, and nearly destroyed my marriage. Um, my first sponsor was an integral part of that rape that took place. Uh, I learned an interesting message about that. Is sponsors are not God. They don't walk on water. They're drunks, one drink away from being drunk. Uh, and in spite of what some of them may believe, they're not. Anybody that I've sponsored, I thank them for giving me the privilege, and I let them know that I don't know where the stumps are, and if they expect somebody to be perfect, it just ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. At that time, my second sponsor came in my life, and he began me on the step journey. A little sponsee of mine gave me Joe and Charlie's tapes of the big book, and I listened to those. I cried all the way through them because I knew there was a 12-step program. There was a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. A spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And I began the step journey. It's changed my life. Twelve of us got together, including me, eleven and twelve, including me, and we had a copy made of that, of their tapes, and we sat with our own big book, and for a year we did our step work, we did everything together. It was the first big book study in Louisville, Kentucky, 17 years ago. Currently, there are a minimum of 45 big book or step studies going on at all times. I go to five meetings a week, and two of those are big book studies that I participate in, and we read the book. I've gone through it multiple and essentially every way under the sun. Now we just line item read the big book. Uh, it's taken, it averages taking us about a year and a half. We sometimes may do one line. We sometimes may do a paragraph. Some of the old salt, I'm an old timer now, and some of the old timers used to say, you just mentally masturbating about the big book. They don't say it anymore because they know better than to say it. You know, one of the things I haven't overcome yet is my belief, I just must tell you you're full of shit whether you want to hear it or not, you know. And it's just, I haven't quite overcome that compulsion to do that from time to time. Especially if it, it not, I can handle it if you want to talk about me, but I have a tough time handling it if you really don't want to get involved or if the people don't want to get involved in the steps in the book. But I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps and praise God that I have because it helps me deal with my dark side and the demons and they are there. And they are the greatest blessing I've ever had, the dark side and the demons, the self-centeredness, the things that are almost insatiable in their need to be serviced. Uh, I remember Graham Cunningham, who's one of my great heroes, uh, I gave a, a talk at IDAA, I guess it was eight or nine, ten years ago. And Graham called me when I when we got back home, and he said, uh, Burns, he said, tell me more about this. He said, my life seems empty. And, you know, Graham was the epitome of of service and gentleman and everything else. And he called me. He said, I'm empty. You're the first time first time I've heard anybody talk to, to me about this move into this intensity of this process. So Graham began to get involved in the steps. And the rest is history. Get involved in the book. Get involved in all the things that involve more than just going to meetings and just having a sponsor. 
I've had three sponsors. I've never been longer than two months without a sponsor. I wouldn't be without a sponsor. I wouldn't, at least today, not, I wouldn't consider going to meetings and not going to meetings. But I've made a 12 step call on a man with 42 years of sobriety got drunk. Going to meetings at least three times a week. Never read the book, never did the steps. I don't know how many 12-step calls I've made on people with more than 30 years of sobriety going to meetings. We always say the first thing that happens is they quit going to meetings. No, it isn't. It's the second thing that happens. The first thing is the delusion of immunity, the belief that life is manageable. The belief that life is manageable. And from there, it's straight downhill. So I can't imagine not having a sponsor and I can't imagine not going to meetings, but I'm absolutely certain that to have a spiritual awakening, it occurs as the result of these steps because that's been my experience and that's the way it's written. And for those people who have the luxury of saying that they want suggestions and they really don't have to be that disciplined, uh, I hope it works for you. I don't think it will. And I know damn well it wouldn't work for me. I just know it wouldn't. Alcohol quit working for me. I couldn't drink enough to get drunk. And I couldn't stop. But pills did work for me. When I quit taking pills in 1969, they still worked for me. I quit taking drug amphetamine because of the consequences. I quit drinking alcohol because I had nothing left and it didn't work. There are still things that in my impulsivity and compulsivity that I deludedly believe might work, like sex and work and money and power and prestige and approval, and they nip at my heels all the time. With the energy I've had in my life, with the singleness of purpose sometimes, which is to get my picture in the paper and a self-aggrandizement knowledge of who I am, acknowledgement of who I am under that picture. I mean, it's a great gift, but that son of a bitch gets heavy sometimes. Dealing with that. Or the approval of my patients. One of the things I've watched most most of the time is with the job I've got working with physicians, I watch the dependency and the dance and the grooming that occurs between doctors and patients, doctors who have our disease. It did for me. We treated a number of doctors, and hell, they could have treated me, who didn't know how to say no because they wanted to hear what they needed to hear. And, oh, God, do I know that. Do I know that song? having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Tried to carry this message to alcoholics. It's purported that Bill Wilson said, and our history tells us, that he said to Dr. Silkworth, I wonder if I might not stay sober by helping another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. Um, From thence sprang AA. He began that journey, and as he tells us in the history books and as history is recorded for us, nobody got sober. Lois said, yeah, it's working, Bill. You're still sober. We know that story. But he went to see Silkworth, and Silkworth said, Bill, you're preaching too much. And I remember preaching. I know about preaching today. You know, I was born and raised in the Baptist church, and, man, I was one one Bible passage away from being a Baptist preacher, and sometimes it comes out up here. 
My decision was between being a doctor or being a Baptist preacher. Sometimes I wonder if I made a mistake. You know, I don't know. I'd have been a damn good evangelist. I wouldn't have been much of a town preacher because I, I could talk better than I could live, <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> man, I, I, I literally can bring tears to the eyes of a rocking horse, but I don't know what the hell I'd do at the country club on Saturday night. You know? <laughs> but it, and so I guess I went where I was supposed to go, and there are other reasons, but that was that's, that's a pretty good one. Uh, so Bill... Uh, started out to help people and and uh, and the rest is history now let me read something to you on page 164 and and Milton Brooks uh, who's been a friend of mine for long years and and uh, whose love for me and mine for him is virtually without reservation uh, we can certainly talk to each other straight but we can also hug each other with love that's real he one time said that you can't any more give away what you ain't got than you can come back from somewhere you ain't been. And what this book says, uh, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask Him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you can transmit something, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. Um, you know, I, I, I remember those 10 years where I literally, I mean, I would have at least five or six sponsees, sometimes 10 or 15 hooked on my belt and I dragged them around like scalps. And, um, and I remember it, uh, when I finally got sober, I had to make amends to most of those guys. I didn't really get them drunk again because after they'd been with me about a year, they'd realized, hell, this man's crazier than we are, so they got the hell out and went somewhere else. But I was the one that got them into treatment. But I, I, I've realized from looking back at those 10 years the things that I wish somebody told me. And that is, if someone, you know, I say this pretty directly, if somebody hadn't done their steps, don't have a sponsor, don't have a home group, don't go to meetings, then it's virtually impossible for that individual to be a sponsor. We always have something to give. We got a car. We got a desire not to drink that day. And we know where a meeting is. So we can go pick up somebody and drive them to a meeting in that car. But if I think I'm sponsoring them, then I'm just crazy as hell. And they're going to be just as crazy as I am. Because I ain't giving away nothing except what I got. And what I got's a car, a desire not to drink, a place to go to a meeting, and that's all I got. Until I have a spiritual awakening as he results as he steps. Then I can carry this message to alcoholics. If AA has a threat, it's like any other organization, it's from internally. And that internally, that internal problem will be when we don't pass the full message when we don't pass the full message. I know I've lived there, I've done it, I've had it done to me. And I know people say, well, God will take it where it wants to go. Well, Father Martin once said that he knew that God could feed him, but he gave him a knife and a fork. And the message is real clear. Faith without works is dead. We have a message to carry to the suffering alcoholic, and we damn sure better know what it is. 
It was alluded to a while ago, but let me read to you what is the seminal message to me of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. That's it. It isn't about me. It isn't about you. It's about you and me being ready for them when they get ready to come to us. That's the whole deal. If someone says, well, what the hell does he think he knows? I just know a shit pot full. I'll tell you what I know. And it comes right out of this book with you people, the grace of God, and 27 years of joy and pain. And before you reject it or accept it, pray about it, go to your sponsor, dissect it, and decide where God wants you to be in carrying this message, but never doubt what it's about. If our textbook is correct, is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. That's it. It ain't rocket science, but it's tough for me because I'm really most of the time without knowing it more interested in what you're going to do for me than what I'm going to do for you. I tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Father Martin once said also, and it's been said repeatedly, I hope that I conduct myself so that I may be, as though I may be the only big book that you will ever read. These, practice these principles in all of our affairs. The, uh, it was alluded to by Tony a while ago, and I think it's one of the most, one of the strongest things that this book says. As alcoholics, it's at the end of the 11th step, 6th chapter. As alcoholics, we are undisciplined. We allow God to discipline us in this way. As alcoholics, we are undisciplined. We allow God to discipline us in this way. And those are the previous 11 steps. The preparation in the morning. Third step, seventh step, eleventh step, meditation in the morning. Tenth step to lead the day, live the day. And the third step to close it at night. If you want to ask yourself, as I ask myself, am I really working the steps? I ask myself, did I do that like yesterday? Have I done it so far today? That is the discipline in all of our affairs. When my daughter was sober, and that all the, all those affairs don't mean in the affairs that I'm having. It means in the affairs that I'm living. <laughs> so it really isn't quite right to say that you have a mistress and you're treating her with love and respect. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't quite work out the way it's supposed to. Uh, but looking at self-centeredness, dishonesty, and resentment and fear, those are all of our affairs. That's the 11th step on going to bed at night. It's the 10th step on leading our lives throughout the day. Is to look at the seminal character defects, self-centeredness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It doesn't talk about anger. It did in the fourth step, but it reduced it from resentment. Self-centeredness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When I can boil all of them down and all my affairs and have my head right, then I got a shot, and I have to keep it that simple. Someone asked my daughter when she was about three, oh, a couple of years sober, said, uh, what was the biggest effect on you? And she said, my daddy. And they said, you mean when he quit drinking? And she said, yeah, it was when he quit drinking. 
But she said, the first thing that I ever thought about when I really realized I wanted to be like my daddy, because she said, I hated my daddy. She said, I just hated my daddy. And said, then I realized something was happening to my daddy. She said, when my daddy was drinking, he'd call me and Burns Jr. She got a brother six years younger and said, he'd call us and say, I'm going to come pick y'all up. Said, he'd always get there, but it might be a week later. Said, then he quit drinking. Said he'd come pick us up. And he always showed up on time. She said, that's what changed my life. Watching my daddy show up on time. Second part's about my father, and many of you have heard me talk over the years, and if you have, if it did something for you, great. If you haven't heard me talk, then it's worth listening to. I talked at an old-timers banquet down in uh, Evansville, Indiana the other day, and I talked, it's interesting where the talk went, I talked mostly about, in my family, I didn't talk that much about my daddy. Uh, and uh, my mother died at age, in 1978, I was eight months sober. I had a great relationship with my mother. Mother was goofier than a goat, uh, but uh, I had a great relationship with mother. And uh, my daddy was my great hero. He was the best man I've ever known. Today I can tell you I've known a lot of good men, and some of you are in this room. But my daddy was the best man I've ever known. I mean, he was the epitome of gentleness, strength, consistency, and love that I've ever met. I very much wanted my daddy's approval at all of my life. Now, I've never known that not to be true. Besides working with hundreds of doctors, I've worked with thousands of street people. Uh, we have a men and women's homeless shelter where we sleep 400 men and women a night. We've got 200 in a year-long program of recovery, teaching them the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous five days a week and sending them to AA meetings seven nights a week with their own internal structure. And I've done I don't know how many fifth steps with these street people. And what I, they are, they are real clear in their need for a same sex approval. Our studies from get low and I'll go back even to the point in time where we know this was happening in the seventies and defined it. But now it's working into virtually all forms of treatment, even if nobody knows where it's coming from, just think it means good role modeling. Well, it's more than just good role modeling. It's a craving for that approval, same sex approval. And I've done fifth steps with these men in my lap that could eat the wall. They were that tough and rubbed the back of their head while they cried because they just told me something they thought they'd never tell anybody, and I held them and told them it would be okay. And they wanted to hear that more than anything. Well, I wanted to hear that from my daddy. My daddy never said he loved me and he never hugged me, but my daddy would just always be there. He would just always be there. When, when I, no matter what I did, if I played ball, if I... He was just always there, quiet and there. Well, when I got drunk, came home, made my, got sober, came home, made my amends to Mama. That was easy because Mama's daddy was a drink, died drinking bleach in the Mayfield City Jail in 1935. So she understood alcoholism and she understood me. I tried to talk to Daddy and tell him how sorry I was for what I'd done, and Daddy wouldn't talk to me. He'd say, Burns Mac, I can't talk with you. My stepmother, my mother died, as I said, about eight months sober, and Daddy remarried to a mutual friend of his and mother's, thank God. And um, because she was such a stalwart in, in that rest of Daddy's life. 
And Peggy told me later on the reason he couldn't talk with me about that was because of his shame. Not his shame of me, his shame about himself. Because he blamed himself for my alcoholism. So I would try to tell Daddy about my amends, and Daddy would say, I can't talk about it, Burns Mac, and I thought that meant he didn't love me, and so that's the way it went. After about five years, Daddy began to uh, uh, lose his... Daddy developed dementia, and it was arteriosclerotic cerebrovascular dementia or microinfarct dementia, but it was dementia, and it went on its progressive way, and Daddy became a robot. He was a stone he didn't know me, didn't know my brother, he didn't know my, 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 who my mother had been, he didn't know who Peggy was, he didn't know anything. Peggy and I decided at one point in time to put him in the hospital because uh, physically he needed to be in the hospital. And I would drive down, I was 14 or 15 years sober, I'd gone through working with Casey, my wife, on cleaning up the mess that I had done in our lives and restoring our marriage and restoring our, not our love, it was there, but restoring the trust and the things that were there. She had an outstanding 12-step program, and so did I, and we took it into into therapy with someone who understood that the 12 steps was the only solution we knew for living problems and respected that, honored it, and led us there as we began to do the things we needed to do. So this miracle was opening up in my life of a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It was opening up. And I would drive down to see Daddy, and he was in the nursing home. It's a 250-mile drive. As I'd drive down there, I'd say, God, take away my pain. Please take away my pain. And I'd pull up next to the nursing home. I'd go in. Daddy would be in there, and I'd work with him for the day and get back in the car and cry all the way home. This one Sunday, and remember this is practice these principles in all our affairs. This one Sunday I drove up and without even thinking about it, it just boom. I said, dear God, let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. I went in, daddy was in a wheelchair, he was too weak to, to walk. He thought I was Uncle Buster, his brother, and I said, how you doing, Hal? I didn't call him Daddy. I said, how you doing, Hal? He said, fine, Buster. And I said, can I help you? He said, yeah, would you shave me? So I shaved my daddy. Old story if you've heard it, but but powerful. So I shaved my daddy. I said, would you like some lunch? He said, I believe I would. And I rolled him out there and fed Daddy because he was virtually too weak to feed himself. Peggy came in and sat down, and she and I got to talk, and Daddy's in his wheelchair watching us because he loved to watch Mother and me talk. God, he loved to watch us talk. He never said much of anything. He was always quiet, but he loved to watch us talk, and he was watching. I turned around and said, would you like to go out on the porch? And he said, I believe I would. So I rolled him out on the porch, and Peggy and I got to talking. He raised up in his chair, and he looked at me, and he said, Son, today you're just like the little boy your mother and I raised. I love you very much. Thank you for coming to see me. Ten seconds later, he didn't know me, and he never did again. Now, as doctors, we can explain the recircuitry of what went on. As members of Alcoholics Anonymous, I hope you can explain it, because if you can't, if you can't, you got some work to do. I can. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is that this self-centered, fear-ridden, resentment-ridden alcoholic for that moment in time, said, let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. In all our affairs is, how can I best serve thee? 
right out, right out of the tenth step to be of maximum service to God and my fellow man in all my affairs at the checkout counter, at the filling station, at IDAA. I found this program very easy to live from the podium and in meetings where the rubber hits the road is what I do between meetings. And if you've taught me well and you have, and if I've learned and I have, I know that what we're all about is let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. That's the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous for Burns Brady today. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you for letting me get in front of you again. It's always a joy. enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the month club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com.